I had an athlete who could squat 250 kilos and that was great, but didn't translate. Of course it didn't. So when you put him in, you know, I start to use someone like this, I'll start to use a stable to unstable continuum. So we take on the, the most unstable thing that you can do in moving is uh, overspeed maximum velocity. Because <laughs> your body's like, wow, I'm on stealth roller coaster sort of thing. And then the other side is slow, deliberate, like a bilateral wall squat type acceleration drill. That was Sam Portland, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're a coach tired of using Excel or clunky software for your athletes, you'll definitely be interested in today's sponsor, Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is a digital training platform designed to help strength coaches create, distribute, and track programs for their clients. It's easy to tell that Strength Coach Pro was created by a coach for coaches. The versatile program builder makes it easy to build out detailed training programs, distribute them to athletes, and track the progress, all without spreadsheets or data entry. One of the best things about Strength Coach Pro is that there are no recurring fees. You pay one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Today's guest is athletic performance coach and consultant, Sam Portland. Sam has had a lengthy career in professional sport. He's the creator of the Speedgate Golf and the Sports, uh, sports Speed System. Sam provides mentorship and education to coaches, athletes, and teams looking to further progress their abilities. And Sam has a unique uh, and really interesting combination of skills, which ranges from physical coaching into sport coaching, but also into athlete psychology and beyond. And Sam was on the podcast a while ago talking about his Speedgate golf system and how he was helping athletes to get really fast while running not maximally every time. He was using a, a mental framing and a gamification of the sprint that was yielding tremendous results. And especially with athletes who are a little bit older even and, and athletes who are a little bit more seasoned veteran status, uh, them getting tremendous results with that mental element. So for today's podcast, Sam will be getting into his recent experiences in American football and he'll be talking about the different types of mental intensity that American football brings versus other field sports that are more continuous in nature. Sam will be getting into throughout the show his sports speed system. So he'll be talking about player archetypes. So bodybuilder, for example, sprinter, powerlifter. He'll also be talking about an athlete's speed age. So how he looks at an athlete on that level and what bucket he puts them in and then how he progresses them through each level. He'll also be talking about the daily progression of how he takes athletes through a speed, uh, speed-based skill and uh, much more throughout this show. This is a show that really blends uh, experience, intelligence, and intuition together in that coaching process. I really enjoy chatting with Sam. I know you guys will love this show, and I'm excited to get it your way. Let's get to episode 351 with Coach Sam Portland. Sam, welcome back to the show, man. It's It's been a little while since uh, 2018, I think, was the last time you were on. So I, I think we have a little bit to catch up on. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I know um, you've been involved with American football recently. So I know, you know over in England, it's a little bit different, <laughs> different over there. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of your whereabouts since the last time we chatted and specifically with yeah, uh, working in um, and uh, playing in American football over there. 
Yeah, it's an interesting turn of events. Since I parted ways um, with the last professional team I worked with, I got an opportunity to work with a, an IPP player so uh, called Alex Gray, who transitioned from professional rugby union. And he ended up being a tight, a tight end at the Atlanta Falcons for three years. So I ended up working with him and that was just an awesome experience. You know, he, we got him, he was six foot six, 115 kilos and he ran 23 mile an hour inside 40. And that was just so much fun. And then from there, like with the COVID period and stuff, I had a couple of other guys that were British born NFL players, but they came through and they worked out and built into preparing guys for the CFL combine and the uh, British uh, NFL international combine. And, and then I, like the more I learned from all these players, I realized that, you know, there are, I think there's about 60 senior American football teams in the UK uh, at, at university level. It is massive. There are guys all over the States playing for in from the UK, playing uh, in colleges and Juco and everything in, in the, in the States. And there's, big professional leagues all over Europe. And I was, I'd done the rugby thing and I, uh, I decided that it was a huge opportunity and I was probably the best place person to take on physical preparation for American football in the UK and across Europe. So I, um, got invited onto a podcast and, uh, and I just told them that I'm going to be the guy and I want to be the guy. Um, to become the guy, I had to play the game. So I gave up playing rugby and went to my uh, went to an American football practice and never looked back. Play tight end and slot. I'm six foot four and two hundred and twenty, two thirty pounds. And you know, it's it's a great position to play. It's a great sport to play. It's uh, I love it. Um, I learned so much about my own body playing it, and so much about like very different high velocity movements, which have been wonderful in, in in helping me coach so it's been it's been awesome and i'm 35 now and i am uh, retirement is is another five six seven eight nine ten years away 100 percent. yeah i love it yeah you know i know we were talking a little bit before we press record too on just how doing all these different activities yourself just gives you such a new perspective on things and yeah you had mentioned that like getting that new perspective i'm curious how actually going through the, through the gameplay of American football. How is that different from rugby in terms of uh, like the mentality shift, things you might be learning, picking up on? Yeah, so obviously with just the pure alactic nature of American football, I remember one game last season, I lost two and a half kilos in a game and I was shaking like anything and I just wasn't prepared for it. And like my ankles weren't prepared for it. My back wasn't prepared for it <laughs> because playing rugby, I'd played on the wing and, you know, I was a guy that scored more tries inside my own half than in from, from in the opposition's half. So I was a very long accelerator and femurs that are a foot and a half long take a little while to get going. And so I had to really retrain my body and from a conditioning point of view and just the impact point of view, like rugby, I'd tackle, like make four tackle the game and maybe hit five or six rucks if I really wanted to. American football, I ended up being starting tight end and we ran a very heavy tight end package. So there was one period of play that I didn't get off the field for 11 minutes last year in a drive. And it was play after play after play and you can't stop. It's, it's go. And my nervous system 
told me I wasn't prepared for it, put it that way. Yeah. So it sounds like um, you know, it, with the position you had in rugby, like you, uh, it was obviously much more aerobic because you're on the field for much longer at a time. But you were saying that you got longer to accelerate into things versus playing yeah. in American football, where American football, it more alactic, but also like quicker bursts, like maybe prioritizing like yeah. a five yard dash speed or a 10 yard much more than rugby yeah. would have. A hundred percent. And like, because with rugby, obviously, the way you start the line is angled off of the breakdown. So I played on the end. So I had the longest time. With American football, one of the hardest things I had to deal with was that the play wasn't building in front of me. The play was building behind me. Mm. So I have to get there and I have to get my head round. And I, it was, it was a really interesting experience. Like one of my KPIs now is like with some of the systems that I work within, it's percentage of maximum velocity attained at a given distance is a, is a fundamental KPI really. And so now the goal is if I'm running, if I can hit 21 mile an hour, I know I'm happy. My body is safe and I can do that in a controlled distance, like happy days. But now it's, well, what can I get out of a seven yard stem and how, how am I breaking off of that? And my goal is to get, like I've hit, what have I hit? Now, I think it's like 17, 17 mile an hour in a 10 yard deep out. And like my body felt that. <laughs> and so the nature of the sport as well, like if you don't give 110% every play, you fail your assignment It's game over. And so from, from me, like, my own just mentality point of view in rugby you can kind of just get away with a few bits and pieces mm-hmm. but all eyes are on me like i'm the tight end like or on the slot like you, you have to light someone up or you have to get into space and catch the ball and if you don't everyone knows about it <laughs> yeah the mentality and that understanding i think is really helpful just in kind of gaining that more global intuition and interconnectedness yeah. with just different types of sports and I do think about this. I was just thinking about this. I mean, my I'm 39. I would love to play more sports, but I at least had the opportunity to play ultimate frisbee once a week in the winter. And it's funny because it reminded me a little bit of basketball. Again, just like continuous yeah. court or field sports where it's not like a stop start, like you mentioned, the alactic nature of football. And I remember in even in basketball, there's you have to gauge your energy. You can't go all out every single play, both I, I mean some people more than others, but if you go all out every single play, eventually you're going to run down. You have to kind of have this mental strategy on where you're going to really dump in, where you're going to let off the gas a little bit, maybe let your teammates, you know, take more of the load of, you know, whatever particular play is happening. But yeah, when you were talking about that with football, just that difference, I also think about that with Frisbee too. It's like, all right, I'm getting a little tired. I'm going to rest a little bit here. Okay, now I'm going to go for it. You have to kind of buy yeah. where you're going to really hit your burst, but yeah, like you said, football, you don't have that option. If you fail your assignment, that's it. And it's just, it is interesting because I think if, for those of us who didn't come in or come up with that kind of um, play-based mentality, you know, it, I don't know. I think there's a certain intensity in that that can really ring and resonate throughout a program, you know, especially if you yeah. haven't had that sport experience yourself and you're like administering the sports performance end of that type of thing. I, I think there's those nuances that do make an impact, at least understanding and knowing how that portion of the game goes. A hundred percent. Like I, I used to have a, a line manager who never played a senior game of rugby in his life. None of the players liked him <laughs> because he, he didn't, you know, 
how can you this is one of the things that just always what we do with the programming is that you never do lowers two days after a game because if you've ever played a, a game of 80 minutes rugby you know what it feels like two days after it <laughs> and the literature is written by people that have never played a game of rugby and have never played eight games on the bounce and have never all of these sorts of things or, or american football you know you play sunday it's wednesday before you feel right before you're ready to go and you can be as fit as you like but when someone is beating down on your chest and smashing you in the face and you are putting your body out there you could be whatever level of preparation like you the abuse that your body takes is just it's it and and that is what i think how do you make successful programs and how do coaches become really successful coaches is is intuition and it is getting reps on the field i think it's i think that'll be unpopular for a lot of people to hear but there's especially in sports like football rugby basketball like there is this mentality and there is this thing it's like well he's done it he gets it you know not he went to uni and now he's underpaid but <laughs> he wants to show you how smart he is and i'm being facetious on purpose there but just to make a point <laughs> yeah 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 I, i've thought about I don't know when this kind of registered in my head. And I've mentioned this on recent podcasts. I feel like I kind of start, sometimes I get in this mode where I just say things like for five podcasts in a row, people are probably yeah. like, let's get told. But like I, the idea of you know, exercise and fitness is not new. If you look at the martial arts, these things go back millennia. Yeah. But if you, went to, if you wanted to study martial arts, you didn't go to somebody who had a degree in martial arts and then just coach people you went to the master who could kick your ass you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's like yeah. how how powerful was that too in in that grand scheme of things and i just think that's something yeah. that we i just don't think we really value so much anymore and i there was um there's a book i've mentioned this book on the podcast it's called the spiritual journey of joseph greenstein the guy was like the mighty adam the strong man the mighty adam like he bit nails yeah. in half and all this stuff and he was an incredible wrestler before he became a strong man and one of his mm. experiences that made him who he was was yeah. uh, uh, he was like a longshoreman uh for a period of time like he had all sorts of jobs and this was early 1900s um when he immigrated to america and one of the jobs he sailed overseas to i think japan and he spent time there with a jujitsu master who was like in his 50s and could literally just kick everyone's ass like no matter who they were he knew all the moves and yeah. i just i just tried it yeah it's just so interesting what we consider you know, and, and again, like, I, I'm not, I'm not saying like everybody has to be, you know, you have to be the football all-star to then coach yeah. sports performance. But I just think that idea that you at least need to have skin in the game with what does this feel like? I've been through this process, you know, that I think yeah. that's really helpful. No, I completely agree. And, you know, how are you ever going to teach an American football player speed out of a, out of a break in a route? if you've never done it yourself like and and know that a ball you turn your head and the ball is coming at your face fast and you can't you need to not slow your feet down because your other receiver is banking on you not to do that because you have to keep your foot speed to bring up the corners to to expose the safeties like you can't learn that in a book and it's it's so true the way you say about like our results and our, I believe our future is founded in our history and because that's where patterns are and we, if you can recognize patterns of success then you can find you know the next 
level of, uh, of, of greatness. And, you know, I had a conversation with Joseph Johnson not that long ago. And um, he was like, you speak to all these guys and everyone should know what his Rolodex consists of. And they're like, nothing's changed in the last 30 years. Nothing's changed. And it's the experience of the coach which creates the change. And, you know, we should do that by playing 100%. Yeah, I think, yeah, regardless of, yeah, kind of like I said, regardless of, you know, I would say it, to hold the a, a physical preparation strength coach the same you know experience standard as the sport coaches i think that's a stretch but at the same time i do think there's generalities i think a sports performance coach is a generalist in the grand scheme of yeah. things so there are like and just the aspects of play and i've been getting into that with like rafe kelly's work evolve move play and like a play-based approach to adult movement and even fitness, like where we get back yeah. to our roots, like even just playing tag mm-hmm. in the woods with logs and shit, you know, in the way and stuff. Yeah. It's like, this is such a rich, immersive experience and just one of many, many things with that. But AI, hey, I, I think just starting with play, like just starting with, yeah. with just doing more of that and then letting that intuition feed into ideas that you have as the exercise, the workouts unfold themselves, I think is a great, at least a place to start 100%. for a lot of people. 100%. Like, obviously being, you know, I was 33 when I started playing, I learned the fastest, not by in the drills, not by in the close stuff. It was in scrimmage and seven-on-seven seven, uh, flag touch. Because it was tempo. You don't have to think. You're, it's a condensed space. Like, you're learning. I'd never had to attack someone with them running backwards at my face like i'd never had to do that before it's a different ball game and you can then as you say play and experiment expose your your repertoire of skills of of what you've learned movement wise and then try to apply them in that setting and then go well that doesn't work that doesn't work that doesn't work let's try this let's go back to the training let's let's develop this and it's been such a great experience yeah i think that um, that anecdote or that idea, a good segue with that is a question I had mm-hmm. for you on force velocity profiling. And yeah. I just think it's interesting because I guess to me, sometimes the question maybe isn't so much what are you going to choose? Like, is the tool good or bad? I think it's more how deep do we need to slice into this? You know what I'm saying? Like, how many layers mm-hmm. deep in the nitty gritty do we need to cut for the individual I have in front of me and their specific needs? And so I'm just curious on your take of, yeah, how far to slice in with technology, things like force velocity profiling in, in terms of speed, game speed. Uh, if you're training yeah. for, con- I know you mentioned combine um, type work, I believe either in the intro or before we hit record. Yeah, just yeah. your take on how deep to slice in once we get into the data and then the finer points of that, that speed profile. Yeah, well, it's all, it all just becomes the journey of specialization, doesn't it? Which is why... You know, I use the term speed age and and it's basically training age, but with speed on the front. <laughs> and because that's the journey of specialization. You know, when we say nothing's changed in 30 years, people just forgot to read what these people wrote. And that is the bumper with the stages of training. Slice that with Piaget's cognitive stages of development, Maslow's stages of competency, then you have a pretty decent path of specialization that you can work athletes through. So the first time I saw force velocity profiling was obviously the gym-based stuff. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I've hurt myself lifting heavy 
too much mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know just cook the goose a little bit too much but we all love west side right so you're gonna do it and then they were like oh we can apply this to speed and i just thought straight away i was like this doesn't make sense because when i'm under the bar it's a it's a completely different setting it's a controlled weight the only thing that changes is obviously the velocity of which you're able to move the weight at but when you're moving through time and space and overcoming gravity and you know when you consider uh, every step as a rep and in a in a in a given rep everything changes every step so how can you ever this is what i was just thinking how would i ever use this constructively especially when i think about speed age when most of the athletes that will come across within team sport they're luckily they'll be halfway up their journey of specialization towards even needing anything like that like these guys you know, and, and part of the strength and conditioning problem is that, you know, everyone wants to develop speed, but they start in the gym and they, and they don't put in consistent leading indicators. So when, how far, how much strength do we need to improve ballistic capabilities? Well, how much ballistic capabilities, where's the drop-off in that towards my 10-yard time? When's the drop-off of my, you know, when do I, when, when am I actually exposing stiffness in the body? Because like when do I actually even have to measure stiffness? Because training speed in a holistic way will build system and local stiffness anyway. But what we do is we look at it from um, an, a maximal condition and then start to go backwards and try to expose all these problems. So we, we don't when when actually all of the original training for preparation all starts in submax conditions and then builds that way. But what we have is we now have these technological models where it's like, oh, you can use this software and it will tell you when your strength zone is and your power zone. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. (laughs) Because you're making too many assumptions. And if I train an an athlete who's in their their force velocity profile for sprinting, if, if we're exposing their power, well, what am I doing to their speed? What am I? What am I training? What am I detraining? What consequence am I causing? And and that's where, like, with the technological side of things, like I've got more guys that have run over twenty one mile an hour just by doing long accelerations hmm. and specialized developmental exercises. You know, and I'm funny. I stole that from Berkashansky, <laughs> <laughs> and that you know, in terms of the whole piece of the puzzle for me, on like force velocity profiling and technology. None of the players are ever going to be good enough to even use it or need it because if we appreciate specialization, then we know that we don't need it. We only need that level of specialization when we're training for the Olympics to run in a straight line. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, if it was just the combine, like, I don't know, if you had three months with the players and all they cared about, I guess, was the combine of the 40 or something like that. I mean, do you feel like yeah. at that point that it would be a lot more relevant? No, because like heart, we're we're not even we're preparing them to showcase to run fast in a straight line, but I wouldn't be preparing them. I'd be preparing them to play football, not to run fast. And if I prepare them to play football well, they would just run fast in a straight line really well because it's a general quality, and everything else will lead lead off of that. And 
you know that's where that's where I think part of the industry has a lot of it's a lot to answer for is that I believe we're in the tech age. Like we're like you remember when the first computer came out? Like we're we're literally there in terms of being, you know that's it. Like oh, I've got a mobile phone, I can record something. Well, so can everyone else. Like where's the experience? Where's for the player? Was you know when we had I told you about Alex Gray twenty three mile an hour. We didn't force velocity profile him once. Yeah. Like those are the speeds that people try to achieve, and he started. He started, he got to over 10 meters per second, but he started at 8.1 meters per second. So that's the difference. And we just used rational training and logical progressions. Yeah, I think that your analogy, I, I really like that. Like we're like just like the start of the computer age, like we have this dawn of the real technical age. And I, I, I like the term, he was uh, the late Terrence McKenna talked about how time or history is speeding up like everything doubles faster now you know yeah and we are in this place where everything is just so um things are coming in really quickly and i think mm -hmm. just like training you talk about in a periodization you know there's like a stabilization phase of training where everything needs to mm -hmm. kind of stabilize and set and i do think that in the midst of everything there is always that need to kind of integrate it all and stabilize it with the demands of the game and human nature and everything that yeah. goes with that. I mean, I, I come into this question, actually, like I don't have the technology <laughs> of that, that training technology. I've used like phone-based apps. I, I tend to be a type of person, just this is my personality, is I just like, I tend to dislike setup times. So my bias takes me more just to let's just sprint all video and we'll just go over, it. you know, like that, <laughs> that tends yeah. to be where I just land personally. So I just try, I always try to realize that with my, the things I kind of think about is one, I, I do think it's interesting to look at a readout on that and then look at what you're seeing in the athlete technically and trying to make connections to the point where maybe you can train a quality without necessarily needing to actually get into needing to get into that type of train, like the a resisted training all the time. Maybe there's other things you can work on. Maybe there's other constraints you can utilize. Uh, but I also think uh, Hank Kreienhoff has talked about this or shared this example where and this maybe is more something I think about with um, like the idea of a five, what's your speed to five yards? What's your speed to 10 yards? What's your speed to 20? Yeah. And that, cause that's the same thing, to be honest, it's all in the same ballpark. And I've worked with athletes who have come out of that type of training idea where, well, oh, my 20 is really good. My five is really bad. So I needed to really improve my maximal force, which is there is, there's truth to everything. So there's a truth to that for sure, without question. But at the same time, like nothing, there's nothing that happens without a consequence in the sense of, you know, Hank Cranhoff's talked about, I don't want to take this too far into, you know, I, I love the game speed spirit of things, so I don't want to hijack that. But yeah. Hank, Hank's talked about like Nellie Kuman, where her start was awesome, her finish wasn't great. So he spent all this time training her finish, her speed endurance and for the 100. And yeah, her speed endurance got better and she finished her 100 better. But the negative impact, actually, the resonance into her start was her start got so much worse that actually the net wasn't any better. <laughs> and, yeah. and I always think about nature knows what it's doing. You know, like there's a reason people run the way they do. And if someone's more of like an elastic fascial person and they're bad to five and I dump everything into making their five better, you know, I, I think about, okay, well, yeah, maybe your five got better. And who, who knows? Maybe, you know, for your position, maybe you really needed that. What if you really did? But mm. I know 
that isn't without a consequence, possibly for the grand scheme of things. I just think there's a balance and integration all that. That's I guess that's all I'm trying to get at is I always try to look at kind of the archetype of the athlete first and yeah. build it out from there. And you know, you had mentioned even too, and I hope my mind isn't hopping around too much when I'm saying this, but almost like, well, what's where does speed start? And I feel like speed yeah. starts with what's the core of it all is is actually playing the game and decision making and then you know, the strength comes on later and, and, you know, the, the tweaks, if you will. Yeah. So I, I hope I'm not rambling, but that's kind of my, nah. my, my response there. Yeah, no, I love it. I absolutely love it. And, and I guess that's where it ties in, you know, so some of the things that we spoke about, um, there is if we look at an industry that's underpaid, undervalued, uh, or perceivably undervalued, overly saturated, full of people that have sacrificed so much to for a jersey to work in and stuff like that then the only thing that allows people to serve any sense of validation is a number so if we find numbers that we can measure and we can create change in numbers then we've done our job because the only thing that we can hang on to 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 reap job satisfaction from a kpi point of view so when you're thinking about well what ways can we prove that we can do our job then it's just another one as opposed to letting ourselves just be a part of our job and letting, uh, letting you know, they like said, like, movement's a conversation. Movement is like, everyone watches a wave break, but they never watch the magic that happens when it builds. And so that's like, when you think about that from a performance point of view, like, you know, I'd rather have less numbers than I can measure and, and more athletes that are just devastating. Today's episode is also brought to you by Exogen Wearable Resistance by Lila. Everyone is familiar with the resistance brought by weighted vests or sleds, and Exogen takes wearable resistance to the next level by using a set of sleeves throughout the body and microweights to literally create a resistance training experience that is as if it is a second skin. A creative coach can use this to a huge capacity, such as using it asymmetrically to improve one's maximal sprint ability. You can assist or resist key movements. It's been used by many coaches who have appeared on this podcast. It's a favorite training tool of mine, and you can learn more about it by heading to lilateam.com. That's L-I-L-A team.com, and you can use the code JFS2023 to grab 15% off your order at checkout. It's an amazing piece of training equipment, and I really hope you get a chance to experience it. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I like the conversational piece to it. Because I, I mean, for me, like I said, I, I've never taken the time to do a lot of like a very data-oriented force velocity, but I've gotten great conversational talking points from seeing metrics on it. Like, to me, yeah. that's been a huge value. It's like, oh, this is, this athlete runs like this, and this is their data. This athlete runs like this, and this is their data. And to me, I, I, I love that. That's been really informative for me, you know, absent of me actually tar- carrying it out and training and seeking, you know, what, what various coaches and how they've used it. Maybe uh, let me ask you this. So if you're not using those types of things, or maybe I'll say too, if you're not specifically using those metrics, uh, Mm -hmm. is what you value basically just a general and intuitive approach to things like as if almost starting from let's play the sport and then go from there, you know, kind of approach like it would almost be the reverse, I guess, in a way like, but yeah, just curious, like it maybe describe your approach. Or the things you would spend time on, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of uh, that date more data oriented approach to things. Yeah. So if you go like first and foremost, 
obviously the athlete will always tell you where they feel like they're lacking. So listen, <laughs> listen, because they will still argue with data. Like they, they will. And so, yeah, they tell like, I'm not getting enough my early acceleration. I keep getting beat on the short side or, okay, amazing. Well, in my, I'm, I'm thinking, right. First and foremost, then my next question is how much speed training have you actually done? And they'll say a typical answer, which is maybe a little bit every, every week. Okay, cool. Well, you're in bucket one. How many years have you done that for? Maybe two. Okay, sweet. You're definitely in bucket one. And so first and foremost, then what do we need? Well, we don't actually need to run fast, which is why speedgate golf works so well. Uh, Sub-maximal loading velocities. Like, it's the three steps of 10 of, of acceleration training. And then, but then we'll be like, right, so how, how strong uh, and how explosive are you in these specific exercises that we can use? Because if you, I had an athlete who could squat 250 kilos and that was great, but didn't translate. Of course it didn't. So when you put him in, you know, I start to use someone like this, I'll start to use a stable to unstable continuum. So we take on the, the most unstable thing that you can do in moving is uh, overspeed maximum velocity. Because <laughs> your body's like, wow, I'm on stealth roller coaster sort of thing. And then the other side is slow, deliberate like a bilateral wall squat type acceleration drill. So what I'll do is I'll start unloading the athlete with uh, their stability and, and increasing locomotion and resistance in order to find the sweet spot. Because first of all, if it's a conversation, you need to understand the vocabulary. So if you understand the vocabulary of, of their movement, and then if they're like me, dyslexic, you need to check their spelling because it may not actually work in different different spaces and times. Then you can really start to see the, the simple fixes. And so like so much of the work that I've done is, you know, use a simple drill stacking principle where we expose a segment. And if that segment is not robust, then we we smash that segment. So if someone's lacking hip extension speed which lots of athletes do, big guys. Big guys struggle to find knee flexion in early acceleration because they are so big and their body doesn't like to be there. So as you said, nature knows what it's doing. It will protect them. And we need to learn to, un we, we increase instability and add velocity in order to nurture that conversation. So it's coercive in nature as opposed to, right, you're doing this high-end stuff, whether you like it or not. And then, so if we do the drill stacking systems of, of segment, then we have um, segment, we have a pattern. So if that pattern is, so we have hip extension, so then we the pattern would be triple extension flexion. Then we have a movement, so it would be first step acceleration or like the initial projectile nature of movement. And then we actually go upstream again. What is that? One, two step acceleration. And we build the conversation as we go through. I don't really like, but I think one area that needs a lot more, and this is where you don't have to do too many other things. If you understand parabolics and it's and projectile physics, then speed becomes really easy. So like a projectile, you put a bit of force in it and it falls down to the ground. And the parabolic nature is like it bobbing up the hill. <laughs> so you always want to beat the ground, beat the hip down and keep growing with it. So when I'm adding these segments in, 
and they're blending that skill acquisition with physical development at sub-maximal velocities, I'm like, well, well, where's the bigger picture of this conversation? Have we strung a full sentence together over 10 steps where we just keep stepping up the hill, as it were? So I've got a big athlete, like the guy I'm working with at the moment, he's a left tackle, he's 156 kilos. And it's like, can I get him upright in seven steps and looking really pretty? Because if I can, then he knows. And once it's pretty, we can then start playing with it. So that's kind of how I how I look at things uh, from a whatever perspective you want to call it, the word escapes. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And it, it makes, um, I was thinking too about your approach to speed there is like giving, basically finding that point of instability. I, I like that. Uh, the idea of yeah, overspeed sprinting is pretty much the most unstable high velocity possible thing uh, compared to doing things out of a kneeling or crouch position where you have more sensory information and points of contact. When Connor Harris was on the show, he was talking about that uh, more on the on the level of like rehab and more baseline uh-huh. exercises in the sense of if an athlete isn't getting something with two points of contact on the ground, you could give them four points of contact, or you could have them lie on their back, or basically it's like the yeah. more in just a very pure exercise or corrective or functional perspective, if someone's not getting it, we'll give them more sensation. And that mm-hmm. makes sense as well from the perspective of speed and what people are ready for. You know, I will ask though, too, I think, so with like sled training or heavy sled training, you know, you yeah. do have more inherent stability. I mean, the question is now you mm-hmm. need to make that stability look good and work well with yes. it. You know, and there's there's different ways to go about that. But I'm curious with that being said on, you know, and I, I don't want to get too far into to, to just little details here, but I am curious based on what you said yeah. in those progressions, your thoughts on heavy sleds where you do have more inherent stability to work mm-hmm. with in a sprint. Yeah. So one of my, if, if, if available, one of my go-tos for, for like looking at acceleration would be a uh, prowler first. Because, again, we go back to the conversation, what's the athlete actually struggling with? They don't like their center of mass too far in front of them. And that's why they like the wall drills. And then, but this is the problem. We go wall drill, or and I, they're not even drills, they're exercises. So mm-hmm. <laughs> just special special exercises. We do those, and then we, we, go, we, we just take that away. It's like, what are we doing? So I would, am I seeing... So first and foremost, that if I load it up just enough of whatever that is, it doesn't matter. But it's enough that they have to push to move it. But it's not too heavy that the, we lose the quality of that push because we want to find push and displacement as level the next piece of it. So we need to put speed on the load, and then if they can maintain the ability to keep putting their center of mass in front of them step by step, then we go to the next level. But we, we obviously you talked about stabilization. So for every level, we have to create stabilization. We have to consolidate because I don't know bigger picture what that is actually doing for that athlete. So I have to wait and see. So I won't jump. Oh, I'm going to run my progressions all through in one session. We're going to spend time doing this because if I've got you know velocity is a constant, isn't it? So if I've got 100 kilos and I've got a 100 kilo athlete and they struggle. Well, my KPI is, well, am I getting more displacement every step that I'm going? Are they just going further in 10 steps than they are getting better? Then we'll ban them uh, or, or we'll anchor them from behind as well. So we're, we're working that simple relationship of anterior to posterior 
force application essentially through every phase of the steps of acceleration. So we we push and then we extend, you know, you push and extend. So we're nurturing it in, in that way and we then basically swap the loads. So we start lightening up the load at the front and increasing the load at the back. Mm. And and then and then it changes again. And what you find is that if someone has never done it before, they get fast really quick. Mm. Because it's it's literally navigating the the situation that they've been through in their training history. Like everyone squatted on boxes, but they've never squatted with a prowler, for example. And you know, it's just amplitude and direction of movement. We're just moving it that way. And then go, go on, mate, have a good old push on that and see what happens. And then all the structural problems fall. And then you just go back to like single joint exercise. We get a load more back extensions in the gym. We'll, we have to strengthen up the calf. We have to do seated hamstring work, right? Because it's all it's all just been exposed. And so then that's how we piece the puzzle with heavy, heavy resisted work. Yeah, would you say that, I guess you're, uh, or could you also say, uh, based on the what we've been talking about the last 15 minutes or so, that a reason or a different way of framing a reason that you would shy away from using a force velocity profiling is, to me, I mean, it's not necessarily like the mechanics of it or the, the, the science or the logic behind it. I've, I've had really great podcasts with people who have put that together, and I think there's a lot of brilliance in it. But would you say it's more maybe the tendency to just view it as a number and not like looking at all the mechanics that go behind it? Like where you could take this and say, okay, here's your rating, here's the prescription. But then, because it, it sounds like in you going through it, you're looking at it from a very pedagogical or educational perspective. Like it's mm-hmm. biomechanics first and then, well, the numbers will come from the biomechanics versus maybe mm-hmm. looking at it the other way around. Would, would, would you say that's mm-hmm. an accurate way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, I believe people are built from the ground up, you know, and, yeah. and on the field. And that is, 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 where, is where it's done. And, and for me, in my coaching journey, I've never acquired or tried to acquire more information about what I'm doing until I know what information I have can do. Mm. And I'm, I'm definitely the mission of building like the fastest team sports printers on the planet. So, you know, we do clues are in our history. Well, you know, what did the fastest people do? They had a methodological approach to developing speed. And so they built, the athlete step by step and you know with team sports you you have three steps and then someone's going to smash you in the face (laughs) and and then it's because if you don't address that part of it you don't know how to maintain (laughs) or or keep moving whilst you're getting smashed in the face and a a force velocity profile can't do that but a, a a coaching a pedagogical approach, pedagogical approach does do that because the athlete knows context the whole way through it. Got it. So I guess maybe in summary, it's just your approach is always finding context to the game, like always mixing in game context, biomechanics and uh, pedagogy and everything into kind of like you'd said, like with the technological age, it's just, it's always feeding all elements of that an athlete is going through into the mm. speed program rather than I think the possibly looking at a number and, and a prescription. It's just a very, it's just always integrating. Yeah. And, and 
like with uh, obviously you know as you said like this it's it's a clever idea what people have done and you know the nature of our industry is that people are attracted to very shiny things not the simple consistent things that don't entertain you as a coach because that's what benefits the athlete the most yeah, you know, with that too, I, you were talking. You were talking about the speed age, and you mentioned that a little bit, yeah. like the buckets. I think this yeah. would be a great place for you to really share that because I think that would share more light on your perspective with this whole. Yeah, equation. absolutely. No, a hundred percent. So you have got like four levels of speed age: you know, learning to sprint, training to sprint, sprinting to compete, and sprinting to win. Hopefully, everyone would have known about bumpers stuff on this, and and so when you when you take that first level, it's like well what are, we've got our physical capacities we've got our technical capacities and we've got our cognitive capacities and if we go back to like the transfer of training that we know that we have technical transfer and physical transfer so but then we also have obviously cognition which is kind of left out of the, mm. the equation there so if you look at those three areas to start off with and the level one a level one athlete is going to have, which is learning to sprint, is going to have very low physical capacities, very low technical capacities, and very low cognitive capacities when developing these skills. How do you identify that one? Well, when you put most team sport athletes through uh, extensive drill warm-up, their cardiovascular system is talking very loud to them, and they are they will be developing soreness. So when when you are getting those physical responses, it's, it's, it's demonstrating physical capacities and technical capacities. Like a lot of athletes can't A-skip. And the reason why A-skipping and all these rudimentary drills are really important is because of the cognition and the cognitive elements of speed and just just, just skill acquisition. If, if we can't find rhythm, timing, coordination at low submax velocities, how the hell are you going to find it when you're putting your foot to the floor? So when we look at that level one, and then there's a whole load of exercises that you can do there, which will create transfer and your, your leading indicators, you know, you're looking at some, the metrics all stay the same, whatever level they are, but you, the way that you weight the measurement of the metric changes. So as we go, if we go like training to sprint, well, someone's at, can actually, you know, has put a good level of training in and from all of our low level stuff that we're doing we are we have stopped seeing transfer aka five meters times have stopped going down every time has stopped improving once that happens then we move to training to sprint so what we do is the specialization we increase specificity of what we're doing so if slow heavy sled walks are working you do them till they stop working <laughs> and then we when we start to increase velocity and the 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 way that force is applied we we increase rate of force development because also if we put it in the bigger context when an athlete is doing heavy resisted sled work or sled walks for example or when they're doing specialized exercises against a, a wall or throwing medball they are producing we know this higher rates of force development than than they ever have and just because they run on the field it doesn't matter because the density of exposure is changed and the cognition of exposure has changed so as we go up the levels 
you know, by the time, you know, training to sprint is probably the one where athletes will stay the longest. Because as soon as we get into sprinting to compete, notice the terminology changes. It's learning to sprint and then training to sprint. So cognitive capacities are really high when we're learning. Training is going to be physical capacities that are really high because we've learned enough, have to really train it. And then we actually start using sprinting to create transfer. And that is when the body is ready to handle all that instability, to handle all of those, those loads, those compressive forces. You know, I think if we adopted an approach more like this, you'd see less ACLs, hamstrings, you'd, you know, because I used it at Ealing and in two years we, we didn't have one. And so and then when you get to the end, and this is when it, then it, it's almost like the simple notion is that if you want to keep improving, speed you have to become a sprinter and by the time we get to the end you're basically a sprinter the goal is to never complete it the goal is to stay at each level as long as possible i wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor lost empire herbs several years ago i had strongman and mental training expert logan christopher on the show and In the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shiliagit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that's interesting because I think so oftentimes things from, and I've had conversations about this, like with Jeremy Frisch and jump training on this podcast Mm -hmm. before, is people will just stay in the early level, like forever, basically. (laughs) Yeah. They never really... You know, and it's almost, it's just always there because it's there. And it's like, I don't know, does this player really need to keep mastering their A skips or something like that? And, Mm. you know, Mm. at at some point you have to, I think it's, it is nice to have a categorization to understand where, where people are and, and what the the themes are that come with it. And so, yeah, 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 not regressing basically, or not staying in a a place you don't need to be anymore. And emphasis needs to rotate, right? So, and that's a huge part. You need to learn to do a warm up so you can warm up for the next piece. Like I had a I had a prop and a big big prop forward, and he would literally do three to four low level drills, and then we would do bouncy runs for forty meters for his whole session. You know, ten ten meter time under one seven seconds, over nine meters per second maximum velocity inside forty. And he was 125 kilos. And that was all we did. Because it worked. Because everyone talks about the lowest hanging fruit, but no one actually knows what the lowest hanging fruit is because they can't, they don't, we don't build the system out. 
And when you go, you look at the progressing jump maxes, you know, like with Verkashensky's work, and you, and you go and you look at transfer of training and you look, it's all there. It's all there. We've just sort of forgotten about it. Yeah, the um, the bouncy runs is that a, I think that's like a yeses kind of a yeses thing. I'm sure maybe it obviously exists in the Russian literature, but that just that way that's prescribed. I've kind of heard that um, that idea out of that camp. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah? So bounce runs. So you're allowing quite a, a high degree of de- deformation of the athlete as they're going through the movement, because obviously, if you think of it from from that way it's 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 rhythmic it's 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 going through like that strengthening stretch reflex type area is very great but we're developing a lot of good force qualities and it works it wins and then you go from bounce runs to high cyclic runs so you just train the other side so you're spinning your wheels faster Mm. and i'm a massive proponent of running slow with high frequency before running fast because it's easier to put speed on frequency yes. as opposed to frequency on speed and same rule of acceleration learn to go forward before you move your legs fast yeah that was kind of a mind yeah i would say it was a mind-blown moment when i was i don't remember the exact the exact instance but it was around the time i heard of the something called the drum drill that was uh, american sprint coach tony wells thing where it's yeah. like basically start i think he believe he started athletes out with like a five strides a second frequency it's like a drum it's like you know and it is interesting because when you train with that fast of a rhythm it's it feels so easy and natural to start extending your stride off that versus when you train and maybe this is just my personal bias because i trained with so much like bounding for so long and i got kind yeah. of slow <laughs> it's like oh well i'm putting all this force into the ground shouldn't i be faster well it's like but the frequency the timing just kind of got so slow it's like i forgot how to be so fast and powerful especially to like my my basketball or just team sport days i guess you could say where there is a lot of high frequency m- motion in there and then i yeah. go and train like just all bounding and slow stuff and just it just got slow and then i started to value more of that that speed that just true frequency as a build out i i even did i've been playing around with this actually for my my tempo uh for me in the track world you know soon to be masters track world the idea of uh, tempo like a 200 i was doing it with a specific a running app where they have bpm so beats per minute and i was running the tempo on beats per minute and and that's the that was the technique There, there there was no like oh what should i do with my arm or my leg it's just hit the but the thing is, is it only could go like, yeah, it's hard to do because it'd be like 120. So I had to double it and make it like every other step. So I was going four strides a second. And running a 200 at a high tempo is actually really tough. But then when you've been doing it for a little while and you start to open up your stride, it feels so good. You just feel this inner connection and this inner like engine and fire that you can then take outwards versus mm-hmm. the other way around, which I think I thought that for years, <laughs> which just kind of leads yeah. to overstriding in some cases. You know, it's like you aren't actually building all the power and the twitch that goes with that that element of it. Oh, and so a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Is that it's um, you know, it's the motor unit recruitment. It's the it's the neurology of it. It's the synapses. It's this the the way that we're built. Yeah, you know, it, it does feel really good. And when you piece it all together, and that's why I like to layer like four stages of competency within it i like to within any coaching system there needs to be teaching 
So when you're, you know, it's un- you don't know what you don't know, unconscious uh, incompetent, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. And so, like, we're playing around with those first two levels. We, we've got a lot of athletes that don't know what they don't know, and then they know what they don't know. And then once we're there, we're training to sprint, we're, we're continuing to get better. And with the Piaget's competency, you know, zero to two is gross motor skills, that's learning. And then two to four, two to six year old are starting to actually apply context to all this movement. So it's exactly the same in, in developing like specific skills. Um, and, and if you start to piece all those things together into these simple rules, you know, one of the biggest challenges and the coaches that I work with and the situations it's in, well, how do you do this with 30 people at one time? You have no time to do anything else. You have to, you have to appreciate this, the, the, the conversation that we go back to that. But, you know, you have to appreciate learning capabilities. You have to appreciate physical capabilities and you have to find something that, that, that works and that moves people literally. <laughs> Yeah, it it sounds like, you know, a theme that uh, I feel is is present in your process is you talked about just the the very simple workout you had with that prop who ended up Mm. with a very high speed. And it it seems like it's the same thing with Speedgate Golf. Like at its core, it's a pretty simple thing. But it's like there's but it's all like the integration. It's everything behind. It's all like the human level and psychology (laughs) type things that go into a real, a relatively simple intervention in the grand scheme of things, more yeah. more so than just really getting into like nitty gritty of nitty gritty biomechanics, nitty gritty data, those types of things. Like it's like first mm-hmm. do the simple with all the human level integration and and really yeah. put that out. It's one of those things. Like if you look like uh, why is Westside so successful? It's a very simple system, but you only like I said, you only train Westside at Westside because of the psychology if you are and that's the adoption and this is why i honestly i believe it in the next 10 years the people that understand psychology the most as coaches will be the most successful coaches doesn't matter what field you're in because sooner or later computers will be writing training programs for Mm -hmm. us and if that's what you hold on to then you've got another thing coming you need to learn to talk to people you need yeah. to learn to like work with people and work with movement. You know, you need to, you need to learn to kind of, it's hard to put it in perspective or, or, or to wrap the, the words around it. Cause when I'm working and I'm working with an athlete, like I'm not looking at a lot of the things that people talk about, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the, the heartbeat of their movement. And not like, oh, is this angle here? Is this angle here? Because mm-hmm. that'll come. That'll come. I'm, I'm literally looking at the way that they're unfolding into everything. The way that they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool, yeah, sweet, happy days. Like, and and the intention that they're giving. And as soon as you have that, like, you you don't people don't not get better. Hey, I've I've spoken on this on a few podcasts, probably a lot, but the idea of I think it's so easy. Oftentimes, I think, especially with you know, maybe social media has been kind of fuel on this fire, but by nature, we gravitate towards what's easy. And well, what's easy is, I mean, again, not that data isn't valuable, I think it's part of that conversation, but it's easy to just go with a data point as if the athlete is a yeah. machine. 
But like you said, and like uh, Richard Ashavis, who was on a few episodes ago, ta- uh, was talking about, yeah, like AI is coming up. And it's right now I was te- I was testing out chat GPT like right now it's training programs aren't the greatest. But <laughs> if since the complexity of AI doubles every six months or so, it's going to get pretty damn good pretty quick. Like it's it's yeah. coming. And if you don't understand all the other things that go into that program, that is like you said with West Side. And, and like with West Side, they're like, if it's not a West Side, it's not West Side. <laughs> that's part of it is, is the psychology, the environment, the energy, everything that goes into yeah. it that's not just a number. And so, anyways, all that to say is I just think that that stuff is, is so important. That's a big reason that I've been – and I always, I always will seek out guests and individuals who put that big priority on. And, and with the position too, I was just saying it, it – it just is that's the easy thing to get an athlete into a position okay you got your knee here you got your toe here well great like you know that's not hard to do to be honest it's can they do that position do they hit that position when they run should they even hit that position when they run what happens in between all those positions and frames and those things it's and you could say the same thing with simply a data point what's all the qualities behind that data point that you see how what are all the timing and motions that go into that data point and then what was the did the athlete enjoy that running experience that training experience as well what was the did they have a smile on their face were they getting angry like did they have no yeah. emotion you know like there's um yeah there's a lot more than than just that yeah i, I just i the, what keeps coming back to me is the conversation and, and that's yeah i think ultimately what it comes down to well and that's it and you know what i want people to say is you know if uh, you know it's like if you're not training with sports speed and it's not sports speed mm. it's just the you know the, the thing that i love and that's it and that's what you want people to adopt and just the same for you if, you know you're not going to get results like john does you're not going to get them because that's that's that that's that magic in there and again it's it's such a it's such a wonderful pursuit and also don't get me wrong like i do i really enjoy this this field but like i said like it gets boring some things get really boring and i'm not you know i'm not afraid to say it so that's where you have to that's where you learn more you have to appreciate depth you have to appreciate you know the the nature of what you're doing because otherwise you know why why do people you know do two years one place and then two years and they're just repeating the same two years over and over again like we gotta get them strong we gotta get them fit Mm -hmm. stop it (laughs) <laughs> grow yourself grow yourself to grow the bigger picture for, for yourself and, and reap the rewards because of it because I think we have a very an easy tendency in what you said because our heart the, the reason why we need things to be harder is to prove our worth I've worked hard so it reinforces and, and I've made this thing more complicated so it reinforces what I do you know my sacrifice and everything I've made it hard and therefore, I'm going to get the best rewards out of it purely because it's hard. Rather than actually, let's make this the most simple and easy thing, so I can go home when work finishes, and I can be with my family, mm-hmm. and I can go to sleep. And when an athlete says to me, "What we got next?" I'll show you the whole system. I'll show you it all, and I can tell you it in inside five minutes. And if that's okay with you, we're going to give it a go. And, and that's what we need to be working towards. Yeah, with the depth of things too. I I got very bored. My first two strength and conditioning internships, I was 
I remember my first strength and conditioning internship. I was actually, um, it, or it might have been, it might have been a personal training internship. It was one of those two. I remember thinking to myself that I actually was just as stimulated, if not more, actually doing the summer moving job that I had. Because yeah. in that summer moving job, you're lifting and working as a team. And it's like, all right, we got to get this up this flight of stairs. Here's this problem to solve, you know. And then how those training programs and those early internships were presented was just kind of like that with no depth. It was just, here's some exercises. Here's two things you say to athletes for each exercise. Make sure you go around and yell at people. Like, And I know not all strike coaches, are, that was just a yeah. certain slice of yeah. the strength and conditioning community that I happened to land on. But yeah. it, it put me off the point where I was like, well, how can I find more depth for what I'm looking for? I was like, well, at that time it was track. Okay, there's more depth than track. There's mechanics and there's more of a, a final destination in terms of event, you know, times and things. But as I've learned more about this, as I've been able to do this podcast and talk to a wide spectrum of practitioners, you start to see the depth that exists. And then even in my own time mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley that I spent eight years there in the weight room and then after learning too about the depth that you can observe and go into and, and not just on the biomechanics side, but the human side and the environment side and looking at people yeah. uh, multilaterally, it's like there is a lot of depth there. This, you know, there's so much that you can there's so many ways you can go in terms of that problem solving part of us that exists in all of us that wants to solve a problem, you know, that doesn't just want to say, here's this exercise, here's two things to think about while you're doing this exercise, now do it more, you know, like, you know, it's yeah. uh, the more depth you can find, it just becomes so much more enjoyable as well. Mm. And that's the game, isn't it? That is yeah. the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. And maybe that's it too, is that I, I always feel, I, I feel strongly, it's like the, the, yeah, the more the the more elements. I mean, obviously, like weightlifting is not the same as a game. It's much more controlled. Yeah. But the more elements that exist within a game that can mm. somehow find their way into a gym setting, the more dynamic it does become. Mm. That's I think that uh, yeah, just kind of and maybe that back to where we started. You know, just just going out and playing games and just letting your intuition run and just thinking about things that are happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, you know, from a, a coaching path, you know, a lot of the work that I do with coaches, you know, here, take it, take this program, go and do it, go and do it, see what you feel. Have you ever, have you ever done the programs that you write? You know, just from a base, just a base accountability thing. I was in the gym for an hour and a half. Well, yeah, but you've got about 30 exercises and you're not doing one by 20. So you've got a problem and it's you know go go out and experiment can you can you spin you know can you run sideways can you run backwards you know as you said you don't have to be like the, the best of the best but you need to understand what that stuff feels like so you're not just you know use a british term pulling out your ass and because you 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 think it works you need to you need to feel it at least yeah. So, Sam, just quickly to kind of wrap things up, and you could take this as far as you like with each of these archetypes, because this could be yeah. a relatively long conversation, but maybe to also just yeah. kind of, uh, maybe we could cross back with some of these things into what we've talked about, but you had a post on five archetypes of players in terms of coaching speed, athletic ability, you had like bodybuilder, powerlifter, games player, track spinner. I'd be curious in, in context of what we've been talking about, just to go into some of those archetypes and, and some of the nuances and the depth that you might go into with people uh, with that background or that mentality. Uh, like you had mentioned, it's not just what they're doing. You look at how they're doing it. You're looking at 
more deeper concepts into how they are carrying out skills. And so I'm curious to get your take on those archetypes of players and what you see with them and how you approach them uh, as you go through the uh, the training sessions. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, well, that was why that was why you asked me to come on to talk about this specifically. <laughs> um, but the yeah, no, it's so what I did is I is I sat back one day and I kind of I I thought about all the conversations that I had to have with players and what what their backgrounds were where they had come from what clubs they had come from where you know how they grew up and it put myself in into that situation as well and like uh as a side note like in the last few years as well i've studied like counseling i've studied mindset like i've I've heavily invested in this side of things with the continued work that i do and because what you're trying to do within this is understand the individual's perspective you have to understand the way that the player so this is a huge thing if you ever consider like a why a player is disagreeing with you or not fully buying in you don't know how they see themselves and you don't know the story that they tell themselves about themselves as a player and if you if you don't you don't think that i am being truthful in this Kobe Bryant developed his own alter ego to play so many players develop these alter egos to play i know i do when i play and i don't even get paid to play like (laughs) you have to transform and so when they're in that coaching arena what they're doing and this is one thing that i encourage every coach to understand is that every coach is always trying their best to make improvements and every athlete if they're competitive will always be doing what they believe is the best thing for them so why the archetypes are so important is that you can actually come with a different perspective and go tell me a story tell me how you got here what made you good because in 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 life and in in training and performance like you even said like you remembered you remember when you were at your best and you'll always try to find that again when you when you fall off it so you'll keep reliving the same behavioral cycle because it's a belief system. So you will do, and you will, you see like you see in all the movies where they try to recapture this experience where they got to this peak state in their life, and whether that was doing two a days, three a days, whether I when I could squat two hundred, I could I could run ten minutes per second. So understanding these associations, and then that's your powerlifting archetype. He, he equates strength with performance as opposed to you've got the crossfitter type athlete who's the one who really just needs and this is the whole thing they need to put work in their body because they probably come from a background that has been built on hard high volume work but low notice that type of athlete is always going to get repetitive strain injuries always break down and so you're the way that you coach these people is almost the duality if you're trying to make them faster you give them the opposite of what their bias lives in because it's how you sprinkle it in you don't say to someone who's reliant on powerlifting and being strong as their weapon you say you can't have that anymore you say let's do this if you want to be strong you could be really strong you better be really strong but i need you to do this as well because your strength is useless and if you're going to be a crossfitter, you tell me that you've got 
you've got good endurance, you know, you're a rugby player, you've got, right, so when, when we're deep in the game, it's got to show up. All this work that you think works has to show up. And I will give you, you know, someone who lives in a high metabolic demand state needs, will need sub-max, low-intensity, high-skill type speed work. And so you've got the games player, the tactician, the player that brings to mind seems Andy Good. If you if anyone Googles him, he doesn't look like a rugby player. But he won the golden boot for many years, four golden boots, I think, was his top point scorer in the league. Played for many years. And he was a master craftsman, played for England. He don't he don't need speed because his thought process puts him in the right place. So why would we train him? I, I remember watching coaches like You've got to lose weight. No, he doesn't need to lose weight. He's doing just fine. <laughs> He's doing just fine. Just let him be what he what he does, and we just need to keep him healthy. And then you know, like where and, and allow him to bring the faster players into the game, but make the breaks, that make all the things, and and he can do his job. And, but you put the right people around him, and then you've got the track sprinter who probably realize that like a lot of track sprinters there's no money in it <laughs> unless you like the top 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 so they need to try and make make a break somewhere else so linear speed is not a problem they just don't know how to play the game and they don't know how to get offline they don't know how to they don't know how to slow down they don't know how to to cut and they're sort of like the stimulus system is all over the place when they're trying to play like how is this this guy is so fast but he can't do anything it's like well there's that piece of of training that you need to give them and then you've got obviously you've got the bodybuilder like that was me when i was very skinny underweight and and so i had to use a lot of bodybuilding methodologies to try and put weight on and eat and so there are consequences for that and then but what you have is like that person it's like oh, i'll put on a load of weight i got signed and and then now if i lose size they're going to drop me and it's like or no, that's never going to happen because if we if we change your training and then you're actually sprinting more, you'll maintain mass anyway. You won't lose it. You'll just use it better. You'll probably lose the puff if we go in big bodybuilder type thing, but there's those certain biases that, that a lot of athletes have. And that's kind of the way that I sort of look at it. There are all the force qualities, but they're a bit boring to talk about. Mm-hmm. But the it's it's understanding how people perceive themselves and 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 how you continue to bring the best out of them i think that fundamentally like that is coaching and if you watch i don't know if you've seen the recent usain bolt documentary on netflix called i am bolt like it's a perfect it's if you want to see an example of of what it takes to bring the best out of someone who no one else will ever be it's something that everyone can do if that makes sense yeah. And it's the way that his coach interacts with him. It's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that, you know, speaking of track and for me having a track background and you mentioned the sprinter type, I think sprinters are amongst the most, I mean, everyone's competitive, right? But sprinters are really competitive, <laughs> yeah. especially sprinters who become sprint coaches. And I think sometimes with that too, and, and just like kind of the speed, you know, theme in general, I think sometimes it's so easy to get caught um, up in competition that you lose a little bit of an ability to place yourself with empathy in the shoes of that athlete in front of you. And that's the thing that, you know, in my transition from track coach where I 
was basically ignoring some of my athletes and not being empathetic at all. I feel like life had me move to being a strength coach very much so uh, for a variety of reasons, but that reason was definitely one of them because now mm. like, and, and I realized this really fast, like I'm, I'm training a tennis team, you know, whoever squats the most isn't going to be on court one. Like, I don't know, maybe they are, but <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's, you have to look at all these other things and a lot of it comes down to relationships and athletes genuinely enjoying their experience with you. As well as I do think too, like, and I found this to myself for a long time, for me as a track and field jumper, and I was a slower sprinter, slow sprinter, you could say, so I found more success in the jumps and like the, the person who could bound but couldn't sprint as fast. And for a long time, it was like, oh, well, I did a lot of plyos and sprinting. So that's going to be the main emphasis for all my groups, even in, you know, strength and yeah. conditioning. And then you realize, well, Maybe this doesn't lead to equal amounts of success for everybody. <laughs> Maybe there's some other yeah. qualities that are a little bit more important, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just just being able to branch out and and see that. I, I just it's so good to have. You know, I think eventually it does run a little bit beyond. You know, someone is not just a category, but starting from the place of having categories to at least start to that process of understanding and empathizing and being able to put yourself in the another person's shoes. I, I think is really important. It's something I strive to do. That If I would say, you know, Joel, what are the things you're working on right now? That is the thing I'm continually striving to improve coming from that. And I still am super competitive. I was just playing volleyball the other day, pick up volleyball at some men's league. And it's like, man, Joel's really competitive. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that is not a problem for me. It's just, it is like that finding where that other person is genuinely coming from. And, and putting myself in their shoes has been important to me. So I also appreciate, you know, these archetypes from my own perspective and trying to have that level of ability as a coach and a guide in yeah. people's process. I love that, man. I love that. It just sort of one thing I always remind myself is that everyone has a story. And if you are living out of your own story when trying to help someone else, you are not helping their story. Mm. And that's a big part of the culture of our our industry we give up so much to do what we do what we do and our athletes pay the price because of it sometimes yeah 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 well it's good stuff sam you know i i know we can get into those categories a lot probably more and anecdotes and but i but i feel like even just kind of going through them in context of everything else we've talked about mm -hmm. in your description there i definitely think that's a good way to to cap off the show i actually maybe i will say one thing because it does fit with I was just having a conversation with Jeremy Frisch and then some other coaches and maybe I'll, I'll just get your opinion and thoughts on this and then, and then we'll leave it there. But a lot of times in the weight room, people will talk about, well, athletes need to get stronger to get, to gain confidence, which I, I believe is true. But at the same time, I feel like, like the games player archetype, I feel like that person gets confidence from just being awesome on the field, you know? And then mm -hmm. so often we'll take that games player and be like, well, you need to get stronger and you need to, and, and maybe they do, but I'm just curious how you approach confidence building. And like you said, you need to give that person what they need, like the, the power lifter. And I've made that mistake too. I, I've made that mistake of being like, you care about heavyweights way too much. Like, you know, and, and then, well, that didn't yeah. work out so well. So you need to eventually go back to that um, for that power lifter mentality. So I guess what I'll say is, is um, for that games player approach for, and maybe this is probably common in uh, soccer or, or not American football. <laughs> the, well, yeah. the round ball is kicked around on the ground. I think a common thing, Milan Yovanovic talked about this, I believe, with American, like Western-minded strength coaches would come over to soccer players and not have a lot of success 
giving them a very like a more maximum strength oriented facilitation. So maybe just go into that games player a little bit more on how you would approach them from a, a physical preparation perspective. Yeah, I, I, you, t- you touched on a massive thing about confidence there. And, you know, I think that's part of what we do. Uh, how do you give someone confidence? You allow them to be confident. And you do that by everyone needs to be seen and heard. So start there. <laughs> Talk less, listen more. Then, so like the games player. And then you go to that question. How do you feel when you play your best? They'll tell you. They'll know. <laughs> do you feel close to that now? Probably not. Or yes. All right, cool. Let's look at your gym numbers. How, how are they feeling? All right, happy days. You got any injuries? An injured athlete is a vulnerable athlete because their, their confidence has waned. So there's an opportunity there to kind of bring up certain qualities in agreement. Uh, and, and then you take it from there. If, if they're not breaking down, and if they're not sort of, if <laughs> their measurables aren't physical outputs. So if they're on the job, they're doing well, they're not getting hurt, they are the heartbeat of the team. Just leave them alone. Just make sure they're not losing the things that keep them there. They need to possess a base level of strength. So like Andy Good, for example, I was with the first team for a good couple of years when he was there. He could dumbbell bench press 40 kilos for eight reps when I started, and he could do it when I finished. And and when he finished his contract. So two years, nothing changed. It's great. He was available pretty much the whole time. So just l- let him get on with it. And it's like, because it's not about us, it's about them. And that's on the field. So, you know, fundamentally keep them loose, keep them happy and, and make sure they're performing. And that that's what I would do. It's not about a training program for me. It's a training approach. Yeah, I love it. Sam, before we get out of here, is there anything you're working on, any projects or products, courses, information that you'd like to share with everybody or where people can reach you? Uh, any Anything you'd like to share on that end before we close out the yeah. show? Yeah. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. So at the moment, I'm actually working on my second speed progressions manual, which is all like the specialized exercises that I use, breaking down everything. Um, That'll be available quite soon. And I have uh, my sports speed certification. So it's like how to build team sports sprinters. um, And that's available. You know, if you head out my Instagram, coach underscore Sportland, you'll find me there. And, you know, I do, I've got a mastermind mentoring coaches so if you want to have a chat i'm I'm always welcome to listen just make sure you buy joel's stuff as as well if you're going to buy mine all right love it thank you sam it was great talking to you today man uh it's been too long i realized as i as we've gone through i was like man i should have been uh had an episode a long time ago but i'm glad we could connect today and thanks for coming on the show thanks man you too i really appreciate it Thanks for listening to another podcast. Appreciate you being here. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving a rating or review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever you're listening to. I'd really appreciate that. We'll see you all next week with another great guest.